Well, good evening. Welcome back. Good to have you here tonight. We are uh, going to pick up where we left off in our study on the essence of God. We spent uh, quite a bit of time last week dealing with omniscience and uh, all the uh, details related to what God knows. And that's uh, a very simple study in some respects and a very deep study in other respects. And uh, um, I was going to bring a, a copy, and I failed. I was going to bring a copy of, of William Lane Craig on What Does God Know? It's a part of the Ravi Zacharias uh, uh, library, and I learned that it's not in print anymore. And so if you go to Amazon or other sources to try to get out of print uh, stuff, uh, there's some ridiculous prices. <laughs> so don't do that. Uh, but we'll see if we can get some uh, some source somehow to get some extra copies of that. Because I've loaned it out and I've passed it around, and it's about 36 pages. Uh, it's You can read it in, a, in an afternoon reading, and it's uh, it's definitely worthwhile. Anyway, that was last week on omniscience. We're going to move on tonight to deal with omnipresence, omnipotence, and the remainder of the uh, uh, elements here, the attributes of God. Before we do get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer that we might uh, dedicate our thinking and quiet our hearts under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the blessings that we have to assemble together tonight. And we're mindful once again, Father, that this basics class is uh, a huge blessing, always a blessing, Father, to uh, study, uh, to show ourselves approved, to remind ourselves of these aspects, whether we were just saved very recently and we're young in our faith or we were saved a long time ago. Father, it's always a blessing and a delight to fix our eyes on you and to uh, remind ourselves of your, of your character and your essence and your attributes, your nature, your personality. Father, uh, I want to thank you especially also, Father, for this class that was designed for, uh, for Dan Craw to teach, and he's preparing his own basics notebook to have uh, on hand for his own ministry. But, uh, Father, you opened a door of, of candidating, and we thank you for that. And we do pray for Pastor Dan. We pray for the candidating process and just uh, continue to lift him up and Stephanie and Pray for Corpus Christi Bible Church, Father. They are considering your will and they need your wisdom. I thank you, Father, that when we ask for wisdom, you give generously and without reproach. So, Father, tonight I get to be um, the substitute teacher and, and I've been enjoying these recent weeks and I just thank you for the, the joy and delight that it is to be able to teach uh, this beautiful truth. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Omnipresence. God is everywhere. Seems simple enough, <laughs> right? Uh, it's like omniscience. God knows everything, right? Well, there's more to it than that because everything is more than you think it is. And everywhere is um, more than we think it is because it's everywhere and it's every when. It's uh, in his capacity beyond space and time as the transcendent, imminent creator God of the universe. Uh, the idea of being everywhere is uh, if we were, for example, in multiple places, we would very quickly be overwhelmed. You know, sometimes I think it'd be great to be bi-present. You know, I don't need to be omnipresent, just bi-present. You know, let me be two places at once. And, 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 and yet, my attention would be divided, would it not? Or if I was tri-present or quadri-present, it wouldn't take very long and I would be overwhelmed by the interaction with the different people in different places and trying to, trying to you know, the idea of omnipresence is, is staggering when you consider that he is perfectly aware of all things in all places. He can listen to a billion simultaneous prayers, seven billion simultaneous prayers, a hundred billion simultaneous prayers when you think about it. So um, there's, a, there's aspects of this that we can ponder in, uh, in a lot of ways beyond what, what the scripture itself reveals. Uh, so if omniscience was a difficult concept to grasp, um, for those of finite knowledge, omniscience uh, may be an even more difficult concept to grasp, uh, and yet here we are, uh, omnipresence in more than one place at one time. God transcends both space and time. And so, uh, of course, my favorite passage is Psalm 139, and uh, there's other passages as well, but I think Psalm 139, I think also when Jesus... Uh, uh, the, the centurion comes to him and he heals the servant at a distance. He doesn't have to travel to the place to achieve the miracle. That's another good passage to illustrate uh, omnipresence. But Psalm 139. And the, and the first half of the psalm, I think, starts with a good description of omniscience. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. Is this too small? Do we need bigger letters? No? Yes? Okay. All right. Well, then we'll 
Make the letters bigger. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and know me. Oh, Lord, when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. And I think this, of course, speaks to omniscience. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. The foreknowledge of God is not limited to time. He knows ahead of time what we're going to say because he knows our very thoughts. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. So verses 1 through 6, I think, speaks to omniscience. And then verses 7 and following that speaks to uh, omnipresence. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. Darkness and light are alike to you. All right. Now, some of these verses, I think, open up questions and cause problems. I think, is, is God really in Sheol? You know, if I go to hell, is God in hell? Is God going to be in the lake of fire for all eternity? But we understand what's being communicated here in terms of uh, extreme, in terms of the uttermost limits, and, and as those expressions are used, the highest heavens, the lowest hell. And we use similar language in our own, in our own uh, hymnology, uh, for example, in any event. Darkness and light are alike to you. Really? In what way? Okay? Not in the sense of spiritual light and spiritual darkness and what he cares about whether we walk in light or walk in darkness, right? But as it pertains to where he is and what's hidden from him and how we can run from him or hide from him, in this context, um, we don't have the cover of night to hide from God. And we can uh, appreciate that. All right. Running away from God is not possible, neither is it possible to hide from Him, Jeremiah twenty three twenty four. God's omnipresence is a great comfort for believers who can cling to the promise that He will never leave us nor forsake us. In fact, I think it's a great promise. Uh, the omnipresence of God is marvelous for parents of adult children, right? Parents of teenagers. Uh, for parents of, you know, when they're little and you can keep an eye on them or follow them around or you know where they are at all times, but they, they, they grow up and they get driver's licenses and they're gone and they're elsewhere and you're wondering, well, where, where, where are they right now? All right, the omnipresence of God is a marvelous uh, comfort and, and encouragement and blessing. Or if your son decides to live overseas for two years, there's more blessings there as well. His infinite omnipresence cannot be contained or confined within finite boundaries. Obviously, when you're building a temple, you realize you're not holding God inside the temple, you know, since he can't be contained, you know, to, to create a building or a structure or a container uh, for God is uh, is uh, ridiculous. First uh, Kings eight, Second Chronicles two, Isaiah sixty six one, Jeremiah twenty three twenty four. Great passages there. Even the Holy of Holies. You know, when you enter within the Holy of Holies and you're dealing with you know a, a, a tent and it's got boundaries, uh, God's not contained within it. And and in part, this is uh, what we have to stress when we understand His particular presence. And maybe the most difficult part of understanding omnipresence is understanding how do we how do we connect with the particular presence in in other words what's so special about the burning bush what's so special of the holy of holies what's so special about us when he dwells within us and say well there's a truth here and i want to i want to embrace this truth and i want to i want to apply this principle and i want to do so properly but when it says i will make my abode with him well if you're omnipresent, then what's the big deal? <laughs> you're there anyway, right? You know, what's the big deal about the Holy of Holies? If God's everywhere, then what's the big deal about the burning bush? Or what's the big deal about take your shoes off, Moses, the ground upon which you walk is holy ground? See? And so we realize that it's, it's a both and principle. Yes, he's both omnipresent everywhere, but and in addition to that, he has a particular presence in certain places at certain times for certain functions for certain reasons and we want to we want to be clear on that as well and i think it's useful to consider the nature of proximity and the nature of intimacy and the nature of 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 of, uh, locality in that way all right um and sometimes when i think about omnipresence i think the benefit of of intimacy that comes with that proximity of being with the lord and uh, so, that's, that's, again, that's a facet of God's infinite capacity that we don't have. 
um, that we don't have related to uh, to these things. So, um, for example, uh, where we are is what we can interact with. All right. So I'm at church right now, which means I'm not at home. <laughs> okay. Which means if my dad needs a refill on his iced tea, then you know someone else is going to have to get it for him, or he'll have to wait till I get home. Um, and, and that's we're limited to how we interact based on where we are and what's in our immediate periphery and what what we what has our attention. See, and uh, so I'm I'm at church, but I can't interact with somebody in the library or in the in the Sunday school office or in the kitchen, right? Because I might be in a place, but specifically within the church building, I'm in the the room of the of the auditorium. Okay. And so uh, I think aspects of God's omnipresence are such that, yes, He is everywhere and everywhere. He, is, he can interact. There's no limit to where He can interact, see. Um, so, so that's a benefit. That's a huge blessing for us, right? And, uh, and whereas if, uh, if I was to field a dozen questions here simultaneously, I would struggle because I have poor hearing anyway, and then to try to sort out the different voices and the different questions, I would probably ask, can we do this one at a time, Okay. God's not limited to that, to, to one at a time. And, and so the nature of his omnipresence is, uh, is remarkable in that, uh, in that capacity. So the, the, to be in a particular place at a particular time, to be directly engaged and directly involved, that's huge, okay? Because if you think about it too, um, in, in particular components of intimacy, you can be in the same house with another person and not be on speaking terms. <laughs> and sometimes it's a very uncomfortable house, okay? You can even be in the same room and it's, and you can be in proximity in the same place and sometimes it's not very comfortable, right? You can even sleep in the same bed. And if if the intimacy is that damaged and that hurt, uh the proximity isn't helping, all right? So in some ways the proximity is hurting if if the relationship is is that bad. So um the, the nature of God's particular presence and the intimacy He has with each one of us as the Spirit indwells us, as the Father and the Son dwell within us. This is a, this is a, a facet that we can dwell upon and ponder and, and, and be amazed with as, as we focus on the Scriptures that speak to these things. Because He has, or we have, His undivided attention when we go to Him in prayer. And you think you know, who am I? I should be so low on his priority list that, you know, I ought to be, you know, like I'm on hold with T-Mobile or something. I, I, I ought to be just so, so down on that. But God, when I go to him in prayer, man, there I am, right? Isn't that beautiful? And I think this is a, a treasure with respect to his omnipresence. So uh, with the indwelling of believers today, God's presence within each one of us, John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him. We will come to him and make our abode with him. And the, the, the treasure that we have as believers in Christ for this capacity. 1 John three twenty four. To the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. And then chapter 4, verse 13, 15, and 16. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in Him and He in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love and the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in Him. All right? And so the blessings that we have with respect to this powerful positional truth in Christ. It is, it is no stewardship has ever enjoyed this. No Old Testament stewardship, no angelic stewardship. And I believe this is even far more unique than what uh, millennial saints will, this internal Trinitarian indwelling that we have with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Unique to the body of Christ, the royal family of God. So, uh, the particular presence does not limit or exclude His omnipresence everywhere else. However, it does supplies us with a particular manner in which we can interact with His glory. Yeah, and you think about how inclusive it is too. What a treasure that we all can join in this. If, if I'm at the throne of grace, you can come alongside and join me right there. We can pray together. All right? It's not like in the Old Testament where the great high priest, he had to go in all by himself. One guy, one day a year to, to stand before that Shekinah glory. You and I are there all day, every day with as many folks as we want to take with us. <laughs> okay? What's the largest prayer meeting you've ever been a part of? You know, there's no limit functionally 
other than, I guess, the logistics of putting people in a place together and being able to hear. All right, any questions on omnipresence? Sometimes this is a, it's a fun one to teach a brand new believer. It's a fun one to teach children. Children, um, I think, can be very creative and very imaginative, and, and, it's, and it's kind of fun to think, and, and they can relate to being monopresent. You know, they can relate, to, uh, you can run them around to different rooms or different corners of the room and different things. But the idea of being omnipresent instead of monopresent is it's, it's a fun one to ponder. All right, well, then we'll move on to omnipotence. God is all-powerful. By the way, someday I want to put in print my, uh, although I confess this morning what a terrible writer I am, um, but uh, each of these omni-attributes I have adapted uh, to my own personal name. And it's fun having a name like Bob because then you can have uh, Bobniscience, okay? That is, Bob knows everything that Bob might be expected to know. Or uh, Bobnipresence, right? Bobnipresence, which is very monopresent. And then, but wherever Bob is, you have the blessings of Bobnipresence. And then um, Bobnipotence, okay? Bobnipotence. And uh, it's, it's amazing the kind of power that some people think the pastor has available to him, and it's not an omnipresence. It is a, a, an omnipotence. It is a bobnipotence, all right? Related to when I am weak, then I am strong, and, and we watch God do the work. But God is all-powerful. And, and, and think about it, in you know, all of these omni-attributes, I think more so than any other attribute, more so than love and sovereignty and, and righteousness, I think the omni-attributes are the, uh, the, the facets of God's essence that you and I enter into when we're in prayer. I think when we're in prayer, we can be in, in China and Ukraine, and I mean, we can be all over the globe in prayer. And, and we don't have to know all the details about certain things, and that's okay, because in prayer we can enter into God's omniscience and say, God, I don't know what to pray for here, but I've got a loved one there in surgery right now. I don't know, you know what you're going to do. And, and you enter into God's omniscience in prayer. And you enter into God's omnipotence in prayer and say, Father, you have the capacity. Your hand can do whatever you please to do with respect to this. And the answer is not going to be limited based on what you can or cannot do. It's going to be limited based upon your will and your plan to glorify Jesus Christ and, and, and so forth. And so omnipotence, and it's fun to enter into the omnipotence in prayer, uh, particularly because we have such occasions where you and I feel hopeless and helpless. We feel absolutely impotent. So we go to prayer, and there's God's omnipotence working on our behalf. And it's a, it's a thrill. So if you ever study El Shaddai and uh, the aspects of what El Shaddai means, it speaks of the Almighty, the All-Powerful. And uh, this is introduced to us in Genesis 17. And uh, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. When he appears to Abraham there, comes back in chapter 28. May God Almighty bless you. There are a lot of references there to El Shaddai. In the New Testament, it's Pantocrator. Pantocrator. And pan, meaning all. Kratos, meaning power. Okay? Uh, Demos Kratos, for example, is power over the people, or the power of the people. Um, Kratos is a power term, an authority term. And he is all-powerful. Pan, Pantocrator. And... uh, 2 Corinthians 6.18, I will be a father to you, you be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord, Pantocrator, the Lord Almighty. Several references in uh, Revelation there. They rightly refer to him as God Almighty. He possesses all power. You can't quantify it because it's all, <laughs> right? It's, uh, it's uh, you, you know, to put a number on it or to quantify it or try to, to measure it with a metric of some sort misses the point. He is the metric. He is self-existence. He is the I am. He is the source of everything. So if there is power in the universe, he is the source of it. He's therefore all power. All right. Ephesians 1.19, nothing is impossible for him. I enjoy the, uh, the different power terms, for example, in Ephesians. The surpassing greatness of the power towards us who believe in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. you got four different power words right there in, uh, in one verse. Nothing is impossible for him. He does whatever he pleases. And that's a huge difference between God and man. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And his power is not our power, right? You know, there's a lot of things we would love to do. We just don't have the power to do it. 
say, sorry, son, sorry, daughter, that's, I'd like to, but that's not within my power. Now, um, what does omnipotence not mean? It does not mean that God can do anything and everything. Okay? Because there are limitations to what he does, what he can do, and can is not necessarily a power feature, but uh, an aspect of who he is, to be consistent with himself. He cannot lie. God cannot lie. God cannot break a promise. God cannot, a lot of things God cannot do. And his inability to do those things is not a power deficiency. I want to be clear on that. It's not that he has insufficient power, insufficient ability. It's that those things we're envisioning are sins or flaws or, or, or expressions of imperfection that God just simply is not. God is perfect. And, and to express an imperfection is, is not within the, the scope of, of, of who and what God is. So uh, the list of cannots... Uh, you know, we'll see, you know, one of the elements of his attributes is he's is immutable. God cannot change. And so immutability, you know, in, in consistency, remember every attribute is in agreement with one another. He cannot apply love at the expense of righteousness. He cannot apply uh, uh, omnipotence at the expense of immutability. All right? So he cannot do an act of power that changes what he is because that would put immutability and omnipotence at odds and they are in perfect harmony every attribute of god is in perfect harmony so he cannot violate his own character nature and essence if we are faithless he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself appreciate that god cannot lie titus 1 2 in the hope of eternal life which god who cannot lie promised long ages ago and this is very truth. When we talk about veracity, when we talk about what God is and who God is and the very nature of God, the fact that he cannot lie provides us our, our, our best clue in hermeneutics. How do we reconcile different passages? We never fall for the trap of the either or. We never fall for the trap to say, well, this verse says this, this verse says this. One must be right, one must be wrong, and I'm going to pick and choose one over the other. No, we take them both. We take them both and we reconcile the whole counsel of the Word of God because God cannot lie. Omnipotence does not allow God to lie to unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. God cannot abide iniquity in the solemn assembly. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. You know, and there's earthly application for that, of course, for Israel and for the church. There's an eternal heavenly application of that for these folks that want to try to proclaim a universalism or a uh, more uh, uh, many paths to get you there approach it's just it flies in the face of reality god cannot abide why would god take the the unbeliever to heaven why would god take the unrighteous to the to the place of his infinite perfect glory he would not do that he cannot do that to bring sin into his presence so can god do any, everything no he cannot do that which is out of harmony with his character and so the goofy, can God make a stone so great that he cannot lift it question is nonsensical. And uh, for this and other reasons, it's like asking God to make a square circle, you know, make a married bachelor. How do you, you know, it just, it's, it's, it's a contradiction, see. And so in such a nonsensical absurdity, uh, you are reflecting the uh, imagination of fallen man and uh, falling short of the glory of God <laughs> when it comes to that. All right, it is an absurdity. More on the absurdities there. Uh, J.H. Smith, New Treasury of Scripture Knowledge, the most complete listing of cross-references available anywhere. And if you don't have the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge, I encourage you to, there's hundreds of editions of it that have been out there for years and years. All right, useful for cross-references. Any questions on omnipotence, on the power of God? Is his arm so short he cannot save? <laughs> right? No, it's not an issue of, of uh, inability. God can do that which pleases him, that which is consistent with his nature. Immutability. God cannot and does not change. And, and this essentially is a reflection of his perfection. Because, because when we envision the perfect being how any change from perfection would be what? In the direction of imperfection. It's like when you're at the North Pole. 
You take one step away from the North Pole, it doesn't matter any direction, you're headed south, right? If you are, if you are the perfect I am, any change is going to be less than perfect. He never has changed, he never will change. He is the eternal I am, and he never became such. For I, the Lord, do not change. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. That's a good promise for Israel. Uh, John 1, 3. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. And so we think about the difference between am and become. The difference between, in Greek, it's Amy versus Ginnemai, but the, the difference in, in just concept between eternal existence and the attaining of some position, the attaining of some status. You and I cannot make any I am statement without the ability to rephrase it as an I became statement. I dare you to find an I am statement that cannot be rephrased to I became. Okay? Uh, and everything I am, I am a husband, but I became a husband on my wedding day. I'm a father. I became a father when my son was born. I'm a, I'm a pastor, but I became a pastor, right? So anything I am, we can rightly, because we're temporal creatures of time, we can say, I became. See, even my eternal life is an everlasting life moving forward that had a beginning, had an inception when, uh, when I placed my faith in Christ. So only God is. Everything else became or came into being. And I think that's what John 1, 3 speaks to. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Apart from the person of Jesus Christ. See, he's the creator of everything. All right. Perhaps if this is the most important attribute of his essence. We could debate that. We could discuss it. But, you know... In a way, it, it's the most critical element because what good is it to be righteous if that's going to change tomorrow? <laughs> what good is it to be love? Yeah, God is love. Great for today, but is that going to change? Omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. You know, I, I, can, I can love every aspect of God's attributes, but if any of them change tomorrow, then what good are they? Same thing with our salvation, by the way. We're not saved if God's not immutable. <laughs> Ever think about that? Because my eternal life is grounded in his faithfulness, to, on his promise to, to provide eternal life. So, it is uh, wonderful to behold and worship, but if it could change tomorrow, then it would not be worthy of true celebration. No attribute of God's essence would be the same without the attribute of immutability to establish its absolute nature. And really, is this not kind of a flip side to the coin when we study God's eternal life? You know, I mean, eternal life is essentially the same as immutability. Immutability is essentially the same as eternal life when you think of it in those terms. God's timelessness is a manifestation of his immutability. God is not only unchanging on a large scale, but also unchanging in the smallest detail. No variation of shifting shadow in James 1.17. Even the smallest change would be a move to imperfection. You know, that's uh, sometimes um, proximity hurts in that regard, right? Because, you, you know, you don't see, you're with your children all day, every day, and, and, and you don't see their changes, you don't see their growth, but you see somebody else's child that you haven't seen since Christmas last year or whatever, or a reunion five years ago and whatnot, and you're like, wow, we can't, can't believe how much this person's changed. This child, this young person has changed. And then um, even those small incremental changes that are so imperceptible that you don't really notice them as they're happening, God doesn't do those either. Not even the slightest change, even the, the most minuscule change would be a move towards imperfection. Like the North Pole illustration, which I like to use. He's unchangeable and his purpose is unchangeable. Hebrews 6.17 in the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, he interposed with an oath. Think how powerful that is. The God who cannot lie puts himself under a vow. <laughs> he interposes with, a, with an oath. Isn't that something? So now you've got two unchangeable things. It's impossible to lie and it's impossible for him to be faithless to his oath. 
we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hope, hold of the hope that is set before us. The unchangeableness of his purpose. That's a, that's a delight. Anyway, Ephesians 1.11, Ephesians 3.11. If you ever study Ephesians, you get pictures there on his eternal purpose. Any divine attribute of essence sets God apart from humanity. You know, has there been any of these that you've looked at and gone, wow, that's not humanity, <laughs> right? You look at sovereignty, you look at righteousness, you look at justice, you look at all these attributes and you think, that is so God and so not us. Same thing with, I think, immutability. Immutability and veracity are two that we find explicitly stated. As to the glory of Israel, will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. The Bible specifically says, what do you think I am, human? <laughs> you know, what do you think I am, a man? I'm not going to change my mind. I'm not going to lie. God is not a man that he should lie, nor son of man that he should repent. All right, now I know what you're saying. You're saying, well, what about yeah, yeah, but I can. I, yeah, but yeah, but I got a verse that says God changed His mind. All right, or that God is a man. Well, yeah. Genesis six, six and seven, with the flood, the Lord was sorry that He made man on the earth. He was grieved in His heart. First Samuel fifteen, Jonah three ten. Yeah, we're aware of those phrases. All right, we're aware of those idioms, those expressions. We're not have any problem with those. Language of accommodation, we think of it as. God expresses himself in terms that we can understand and appreciate. It's not that God was clueless or that God didn't know about the fall of man or the the flood circumstances or anything else, but he uses the testimony. And also, by the way, what is so wrong about God being sorry? (laughs) You know, even when you do things that you know are necessary, you you do things that you know are right, you can still have regrets connected with it because of the sin because of the the disobedience because of the death and the judgment and whatnot i don't believe uh he says i'm sorry that i have made them doesn't mean that uh that that he's not somehow omniscient or that he's not some that he's repenting or that he's immutable in any event i think language of accommodation is a marvelous thing to understand same thing when he uses anthropopathisms anthropomorphisms when he uses other idioms and expressions when he says, my hand is upon you, God doesn't have a literal hand, but we recognize the expression for what it represents, and it, it connects with us because of who we are and the hands that we have. So uh, no issues there. I regret that I've made Saul king. Um, verse 11 and verse 33. Jonah 3.10. God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked way, so God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Okay, So Nineveh repents, and he doesn't judge them. And Jonah then has to pout and say, I told you so, All right, in the, in the story there. So language of accommodation, and, uh, and it's not an issue. Uh, Great Doctrines of the Bible has an article on this, if you want a copy. Uh, I believe I included it in the notebook. Uh, Does God repent? And... Uh, aspects there it's a good article if you want a copy just shoot me an email i'll send that to you any questions on immutability well we're flying tonight i'm going way too fast it's because i got revved up and was racing like a fiend this morning in jeremiah that's uh kind of carrying over tonight all right there's other deeper things too i think with respect to there, the philosophers have examined aspects about, and in part, it's why they struggle to understand God on a personal basis. And, and here's where the real puzzle comes in. As we, as we interact, as we come to know people, our relationships deepen, okay? And, and in that dynamic, since God is relational, and he relates to us as as we grow as our relationship grows is there a, is there a way that we could envision that somehow god changes if if his relationship with me deepens if my relationship with him deepens you see what i'm saying 
And, and so, in fact, Geisler addressed this. If you were in our systematic theology class, Norm Geisler was really, I think he was writing, and he's a marvelous writer, but he was, he was some of his writings, I think, were going in some circles trying to explain the, um, the, the suffering of God. Does God suffer? Does God experience sorrow? And, and if so, and, and there's a whole school of thought that rejects that totally. God cannot experience sorrow. He cannot experience suffering. Um, that any Bible verse that says he does is simply language of accommodation because any experience of suffering would change him and he's immutable. See? And I, and I think on a, on a philosophical basis those are worthy aspects to, to consider and to not be afraid of. To not be afraid that, that his experience of, of, of satisfaction, we know that he was satisfied in his son, so does that satisfaction change who the Father is? No. And I think um, in some respects we're, we're just too finite to try to grasp the totality of, of these terms as they apply to God himself. So um, God does not change and when he's well pleased with each one of us, when he, when, when he greets us in heaven and says, well done, good and faithful servant, when our Father is satisfied at our entrance into glory, um, we're not changing, it's not affecting his immutability in, uh, in the experience of that, uh, of that emotion. Anyway, that's how I understand it. I think Geisler would agree. All right, veracity. The final element of God's essence that we will examine is his attribute of veracity. God is absolute truth. Everything he declares is absolutely true. Even when he records a lie, sometimes a lie gets spoken and he accurately records it in the Bible. <laughs> that's because he's the God of truth. All right. Doesn't mean the the lie is true, but he is truthfully recording the lie as it was spoken. Psalm thirty one five. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. And is it any wonder, of course, that our postmodern world denies this that there's such a thing as truth? Right? It's because our postmodern world wants to deny that there's such a thing as God. That they you know they'll 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 with straight face they'll stare at you and say there are no absolutes. You know, and then even while they make an absolute statement in that in that regard, um, yeah, they don't want to know what that there is truth, and so they want to make everything fuzzy so it's all relative. And what's you know, I may have a set of truths, you may have a set of truths, and they may contradict, but they're okay with that contradiction because they prefer to live in an illogical world. And yet, our rational existence uh, is such that. Uh, we have the laws of non-contradiction. We've got we've got laws of truth that relate to the process of thought and logic, and uh, we can appreciate that. It's uh, the existence that we operate in is grounded in God's existence, and that uh, itself I think is uh, is remarkable. By the way, I threw that out a few weeks ago on a Wednesday night, I think, and it was just a a passing comment. It was it was almost in jest that we should have a logic class here at Austin Bible Church. We should have a, a course or a class or a, a seminar or something on formal logic, that we would benefit from that in our hermeneutics and in our Bible study and other things. And, um, and Chris Smith actually took me up on it. He, uh, he's, he's willing to put a curriculum together and prepare a class and teach it as a part of his formal training uh, in, in his workplace and, and educational background, he, he thrives in, in systems of formal logic. He could even teach us computer logic if we want to go there, but I, I'm, I'm, I just want to keep it in the, in the philosophical realm as we can apply it to, uh, to uh, the Word of God. So pray for that. If uh, I told him, I said, put some notes together, show me your outline, and, and let me see what you got. And we'll, uh, we'll, uh, we'll make good on that. I think that would edify, definitely would edify. Yes, sir. Okay. We'll all connect you with Chris Smith then and we'll make sure that uh, what he's doing and what you're doing can, can link together. That'd be good. He might have material that you can use and you might have material he can use and you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Logic's been around for a while. You're right, logic's been gone for a while too. That's true. The endangered species for what it is. You know, common sense is not so common anymore. Have you noticed that? All right. Yahweh is the God of truth. Thank God for that. Kyrie hathaos teis aletheos. I love it. I named my daughter Alethea because of the Greek word for truth. It's just a 
it's a beautiful concept. It's a beautiful word. It's a beautiful name, and she's a beautiful girl. So there it is. So he who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. And in a huge sense, this is the basis for faith as having any value. You know, what good is it if you believe a lie? Or what good is it if you trust a liar? Okay? So the infinite value of faith in Christ is infinitely valuable. Why? Because God is true. Otherwise, trusting in Christ for eternal life would be kind of, you know, be like trusting a politician (laughs) for some promise they're making. Well, are they truthful? Are they reliable? I think we saw this morning, cursed is the man that trusts in man. Okay? Um, But blessed is the man that trusts in the Lord and makes the Lord his trust. God's veracity is such that every single promise is a yes promise worthy of our human amen. In Him, for as many as are the promises of God, in Him they are yes, therefore also through Him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Amen comes from the Hebrew, the the expression there um, signifying the acceptance of the truth. I believe it. Uh, The confirmation of of the truth. God's promises are certain because it is impossible for God to lie. We've seen some of those principles already. We looked at some of those under the uh, what God cannot do. God cannot lie. Um, when, God, when the God who cannot lie swears an oath by his own holiness, <laughs> the infinite value of veracity is infinitely multiplied. Infinitely mul- multiplied. Infinity times infinity, or infinity raised to the infinity power. Just think about it. The God who, not, who cannot lie, he takes a vow. And when he takes a vow, he stakes it upon his own life. As I live, declares the Lord. So the God who cannot lie takes a vow and stakes that vow on his own life. The God who cannot die. You realize how intense this is? <laughs> this is just, it, it's, it's overwhelming. Psalm eighty-nine, thirty-five. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. And every church in town that teaches replacement theology has to rip that verse out of their Bible or just mark it out with a marker. Right? You want to just grab that verse and slap them upside the head in a grace way and say, does God lie to David? Then how do you teach replacement theology? How do you do away with the Davidic throne? How do you do away with the eschatological future of Israel? How do you replace Israel with the church? How dare you? And if God is that kind of a liar, then What's to stop him from chunking the church and replacing it with something else? See, we're not saved if God's a liar like that. I will not lie to David. Once I have sworn by my holiness. Once. Once and for all. Once. Okay? And I love that. To me, that is such a doctrine in the book of Hebrews, that once and for all sacrifice. That once and for all promise. Okay? In in some respects, and, and I... Um, I'll get in trouble, so forgive me. Anyone here live tonight or anyone on tape or anyone uh, watching the video, but I have a personal dislike for renewing of wedding vows. All right? There, I said it. I'm on record. But to me, and, I, and I've, 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 I've attended them, okay? I've sat there, I've watched people do it, and it's all emotional and whatever on their anniversary or down the road and whatnot but you know the vow is till death us do part and does that need to be renewed restated anyway (laughs) that's my personal that's not bible it's not scripture i can't point to a passage other than maybe this one once i have sworn by my holiness i have sworn a vow Till death us do part. And so my conviction is, is if I was to stand before Sharon and, and look her in the eye and try to renew something that was already till death us do part, what am I saying? At that, mo- at that moment, I'm saying uh, maybe I was kind of shifty before <laughs> or something, I don't know. Anyway. That's all I'll say on that. And if I offended someone, I apologize. Amos 4.2. The, the Lord God has sworn by His holiness, behold, days are coming upon you. You know, there's a 
you know, I'll take you away with meat hooks. That's not a, a fun one. Hebrews 6.18, again, it's impossible for God to lie. Infinity to rate the infinity power. Human beings may doubt God's truth because our finite nature cannot grasp his timetable. You know, we may think that God lied or God was wrong or God was somehow mistaken because it's taken so long for a promise to be fulfilled. And we tend to think if it takes too long, well, it's not going to happen. Okay? Children think if a parent takes too long, well, then they forgot about it or they're not going to do it. Or a politician takes too long, well, you know, they were lying up front anyway, right? No, God is not slow, as count, some count slowness regarding his promise. Our limitations do not alter his veracity. It hastens toward the goal, it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come, it will not delay. And that is so beautiful in Habakkuk 2.3, followed by Habakkuk 2.4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. You know, when you study the, the, the fall of Satan and the nature of Satan, who believes God's a liar, why does he believe God's a liar? Because he's a liar. <laughs> okay? You ever notice that? People ascribe things to other people that really reflect their own darkness, their own carnality, their own issues. You know, here's Satan, the wisest of all created beings. God explains to him who he is, and Satan doesn't believe him. I think that, that I think the primary issue in the fall, the only way Satan can say, I will be like the Most High God, is if God is lying about who and what he is. Because if God is the eternal I am, then it's too late for Satan. He can never become an uncreated being. He's already a created being. See? But if God's lying about being uncreated, if God's lying about being the eternal I am, if God is the kind of God that uh, maybe overthrew the God before him and took his place and, and now is making claims, well, that's what Satan suspects, and he can do the same thing. Can't he throw God down and take his place? And then make a bunch of new angels and tell them, you know, if you think about it, you can tell your younger siblings anything you want and they don't know any, any difference. You can, you can tell, the, the older siblings can tell the younger siblings, I remember when the police dropped you off on our front porch. I remember when, when yeah, we found you in a, in a, in a dumpster and, and mom and dad felt sorry for you. You know, and the younger sibling, you know, they're at the mercy of the lies that their older siblings are telling them. Okay? Well, they weren't there. What do they know? See? Well, here's Satan. And everything God tells him about the time before the creation of angels. What's Satan supposed to do? Just believe him? Just trust him? Okay? Well, you say you've always been here. How do I know that? Just because you've always been here since I've been here and since I've known you, but what about before I got here? Say. All right. Another term for veracity is faithfulness. <laughs> you know, if he's a liar, then he's not faithful. Jesus Christ is the amen, the faithful and true witness, Revelation 3.14. The amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. He will even take this name into the Battle of Armageddon as one of his two great battlefield names written on uh, his thigh as he goes into battle on the horse here. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. He who sat on it is called Faithful and True and in righteousness he judges and wages war. He goes to battle under this name. Like all of God's attributes, veracity is a stark contrast between deity and humanity. Romans 3, 4. Let God be true. Let God be found true, though every man found a liar, as it is written. Okay? There's a good verse for the political season. <laughs> All right? Let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. Supplies a stark contrast with the adversary, with Ha-Satan. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. John eight forty four. This really cuts to the issue of that initial fall, the fall of Satan from the angelity past. He was a liar from the beginning. What else was he? He was a murderer from the beginning. That's an extraordinary study. Why does the scripture link murder and lying together the way that it does? <laughs> you know, And why does humanity create such a wedge and, and say, well, yeah, murder, that's kind of a big deal, but lying, well, that's not so bad. 
There's little white lies. You know, everybody lies. There's, there's some lies that are good lies. And we, we tend to think that, well, okay, murderers are bad people. Liars, well, you know. The Bible puts them together time and time and time again, including here. And yet I will make myself like the Most High God. Well, guess what? The Most High God is not self-made. You can't make yourself like the Most High God. He is, always is, always has been, always will be. Just as with immutability, our own salvation is meaningless. If God is not veracity, if God is personally capable of communicating falsehood, then why should I trust his promise of eternal life? In fact, the Bible describes rejection of the gospel as rejection of God's veracity. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. You ever think about that? I love 1 John 5. This is the chapter my mother used when she led me to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's 1 John chapter 5. And uh, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. It's as simple as that. And with, with those verses, she showed me how simple it was to receive this eternal life. All right, well, that wraps up essence. Any questions on veracity? Any questions on truth? I will answer truthfully. Well, then. This is probably a good place to stop. I'm a few minutes early, but next week we'll come back. Uh, the remainder of the basics notebook. I'm still praying about uh, anthropology, soteriology, the rest of the basics notebook. I don't mind just taking on through. I know Dan had a slightly different order and a slightly different because uh, he's putting his own notebook together. Um, but we can go through all these issues here. I also, by the way, in uh, August want to have a. Uh, a baptism class, because we're going to have a baptism service on August the um, 23rd. I think that's right. The last Saturday of the month. The Saturday right before our our church service with Pastor Cliff when Lost Pines joins us. So the end of August is going to be fun, okay? Because uh, Lost Pines is going to join us on that last Saturday of August. On the, I'm sorry, that last Sunday of August is when Lost Pines is going to join us. And uh, maybe even Corpus Christi. Pray for that. Maybe Corpus Christi will join us as well. Uh, but the Saturday before then, I think it's the 23rd. Let me have a calendar. Okay. Oh, I've got my date wrong then. But the last Saturday of the month is going to be our baptism service. And so on a Sunday night, sometime in August, I want to take one of these basics classes and give it over to the baptism doctrine and make sure that we're clear on the doctrine of baptism and uh, make sure that our ritual is not without reality in, uh, in that. All right. Any final questions? Concerns? Complaints? Had an old drill sergeant at Fort McClellan, Alabama, and he would say, any comments, questions, financial donations? And no one ever had any comments, questions, or financial donations. We actually were kind of afraid of him because we knew that that joking attitude of his was all an act and he was, he was going to be very mean to each one of us. So. All right. Thank you, Father, for tonight. Thank you for your faithfulness. Father... Uh, it is a joy and a delight. As we've studied your attributes, Father, what a blessing for us to, to just take, take one by one, day by day, or just spend a week dwelling on a component of who you are and what you are, and, and to just uh, magnify your being and our thinking. So, Father, uh, increase our capacity to appreciate the, uh, the infinite glory of, of, uh, of yourself. I uh, thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.